Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Vera Tarman. Now, Vera is a uh, physician and an addiction specialist, and she treats all kinds of addictions. In fact, she's the medical director of one of Canada's largest uh, addiction treatment centers. But her, her passion and her focus is on food addiction. And that's really interesting because when it comes to the world of psychiatry, the world of addiction medicine, food addiction actually isn't recognized as a true diagnosis. So for someone to be a addiction specialist physician and to work in an addiction center and focus on food addiction, it, it presents a little bit of, a, of an issue, I think, because of the lack of a diagnosis. And we talk a lot about that and what it means to the field of addiction medicine and what it means to individuals who may be addicted to food. Um, she also has uh, authored a book, um, food junkies recovery from food addiction. She's got a podcast food junk food junkies. She's got a free Facebook group. She tries to put as much information out there as she can to help connect with people and help them through this problem. Because, um, like with a lot of addictions, there's a lot of, uh, doubt. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and it can be really hard to sort of break through it. And the first part is recognizing it, understanding it, and knowing where to get help and how to get started um, with help. So we talk a lot about sort of the definition and, and why it may or may not be food addiction and whether that even really matters, um, you know, how to differentiate it from other just food cravings or emotional eating and things like that, what types of foods um, are most addictive, how to recognize it in yourself and where to start to get to get help or treatment. Um, so if you think you might be battling this or you, someone you know is struggling with this, this could be a really important episode um, to listen to um, because it's not something that's talked about, certainly among um, general medical practitioners uh, because it's not something that they, they necessarily recognize, but maybe it's something we need to talk more about. And I'll admit, addiction is a very controversial term and, and you know it may not meet criteria for an addiction in terms of the legal definition, but again, for the individual that doesn't matter. But there are some people that we talk, and we talk about like Dr. Robert Lustig who are trying to change that. Um, so anyway, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Vera Tarman. Dr. Vera Tarman, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm thrilled to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for asking. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I mean, look, you your name comes up all over the Diet Doctor website because so many people are asking about food addiction and and wondering if they have it, worried that they have it, what do they do about it, where do they go? And and your book, your Facebook group, your podcast are commonly come up as sort of like the go-to places to address this. But so I want to take a step back though, because this word addiction is so controversial, right? And so heavy. And you've got some people who say, yes, absolutely food addiction is a thing. And then some people who say, absolutely not. It's not food addiction and shouldn't be called food addiction. And there is no sort of, I guess you could say medical diagnosis of food addiction in the DSM-5, which is the, the list of approved diagnoses, I guess you could say for mental health disorders, there isn't a food addiction. So I want to open it up just to hear how you sort of wrestle with that, with the yes, it's addiction, no, it's not addiction. And, and how do you make sense of that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you've hit it right on the head. This is the big controversy in the medical community. 
And it's very frustrating for us in the trenches because we need the support from the medical community so that we can get actually, uh, you know, treatment, uh, insurance, medications, all the rest of it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's the bane of our existence. Um, so, of course, I, I will ad admit openly that I'm a believer of food addiction. Uh, I'm an addictions physician, and um, I see, uh, it, it, to me, it's a no-brainer because I see the behaviors exactly the same when my alcoholics, uh, people who are, I mean, I work in a treatment center and see on a regular basis probably uh, over 5,000 people each year with the same kind of patterns of behavior, whether it's cocaine, alcohol, and food. I mean, how can I not think that it's the same thing? So it's uh, it's it's exactly the same behavior. Um, how I approach it is, I mean, there's so many criticisms, and you know, one of them is it's not actually addiction; it's um, it's an eating disorder, or it's it's an eating addiction. It's not actually the food itself. And uh, what what I say is, food addiction is an umbrella term, and and uh, it, it, it I, some people will say, okay. People don't like the word food addiction. Let's just say sugar addiction because we can we can sell that one. <laughs> more and more people are acknowledging that sugar and refined uh, carbohydrates are addictive because we know the food industry has has you know tackled and made these foods addictive so that you'll buy their food. So that's not that hard to sell. And and um, uh, so they say, why don't we just call it sugar addiction or maybe processed food addiction or refined carb addiction and I, I would say that's fine. If, if that's what we have to do, then we'll do that. But I like the term food addiction as an umbrella term because it captures the um, the, the narrow, uh, maybe early stages of the, the big for, form of food addiction, which is a sugar addiction, refined carb addiction. But, but because we call this an addiction and it follows the same pattern of behavior as any other addiction, it's chronic and progressive and there's a syndrome. Uh, it's not just that we're subjected to addictive foods, we're actually suffering a condition or developing a condition that's getting uh, uh, more progressive and ultimately chronic. And um, so early days, it might be just sugar addiction, mid days, what we would call mid-stage food addiction, it's more than just that. It can it can be um, not just carbs now, it can be, well, I mean, uh, refined carbs, it can be grains. Uh, ultimately, it can be dairy, it can be cheese, it can be things that are usually on the safe list, are no longer on the safe list. And then ultimately, it be can become an eating addiction where you can just eat anything too much. And it's just the process of eating, the behavior of eating. So Food addiction captures the whole gamut, and and uh, if if you want to uh, uh, do that, uh, like I think that's the best. But if you want to break it down just to sell the issue, then that's fine. Sure, if the if the people in eating disorder clinics want to call this an addiction or a behavioral disorder, fine, you can do that. Cause we're, we're we're really talking the same thing. Yeah, um, it's so interesting that you you sort of broke it down like that. Whether it's sugar whether it's you know processed foods and then whether it's grains or even dairy. And, and I guess that's part of the problem, right? Because we have to eat. We don't yeah. have to smoke. We don't have to do drugs. We don't have to do alcohol. We can cut those things out. And there's a specific substance in those things, whether it's the nicotine or the alcohol or the, the drug itself and cocaine or whatever. There's a specific substance that is, is addictive. And you yeah. can't really say the same for food. You have to eat. So that's where... I think there is this controversy and so many people get sort of upset about the term, but interesting that you said, sure, call it sugar addiction if you want to sell it at that. But that really sort of 
cuts it short because there's so much more than just sugar addiction. Exactly. But it seems like yeah. you laid out almost like a like a step-by-step path of what happens. Yeah. So is that normally how you see it progress from sugar to processed foods to grains, then to dairy? Like, is that sort of like a, a, a normal progression that you see in your clinical practice? Yeah, I, I think so. And it's just some people get to, you know, they, you know, get to one end more quickly than another because of a previous a predisposition to addiction. Like somebody who's uh, uh, even a, a cigarette smoker. Um, what happens when you quit smoking cigarettes? I mean, there's the always the uh, expectation that you'll gain about 10 pounds um, mm-hmm. just because of quitting the, the cigarettes. But, but usually people gain more than that. And it's because they basically transferred their addiction from tobacco to now sugar. Um, uh, so um, if the person comes in with a predisposition, then uh, they're going to get to that progression much more quickly. So you may not see the uh, development of it, but you know, it, it's a slow, steady process. And anybody, I, I really do believe in, in the food environment that we live in today. I mean, addiction is really just a, um, a maladaptive but understandable reaction to a toxic environment. It's just the brain trying to respond to this insanity of, you know, excess, uh, um, well, basically dopamine spikes. So you get dopamine tolerance and then you get, um, uh, you know, eventually dependence, you know, the backstory, which we can talk about a bit later. Um, uh, but it, it, it's just the brain responding to an abnormal environment. And, uh, some people more quickly than others. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like you can, you look at things like, you know, the hunter-gatherer societies, and when they come across um, a honey, a honey, a beehive with honey, they like, yeah. you know, the stories are they just tear into it and they eat it like crazy, and and they they don't have that much of like a a zest for eating as quickly and as ravenously as they do for honey, but th- that doesn't make them necessarily addicted to sugar or addicted to honey. But when you have that available every single day and you dig yes. into it the same amount every single day, is that sort of what crosses the border? It's sort of like the, the availability is what makes the disease almost? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it is. It's the availability. Um, it's the ubiquitous nature of it. Um, it's the rapidity of, I mean, it's not just the availability, but the almost expectation that we eat this two, three, four, five, six, eight times a day, you know? So there's the, the, the constantness of it. There's the... Um, um, bombacity of it, uh, the exaggerated effect, uh, you know, like, uh, yes, honey is a super big experience, but it's not every day. Uh, but, you know, those, those hunting, hunter gatherers, if probably if they lived in an environment where it was abundant all the time and there was the expectation that they have it all the time, uh, they would have become addicted to it at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, if you think about a lot of the foods that are not not foods, but drugs that are addictive, like alcohol, for example, early days, they were often couched in a sort of spiritual religious tradition so that there was a sort of containment, um, uh, just like there used to be a containment even in 100 years ago. I, you wouldn't give your kid the food that we give today. It would be like once once literally at Christmas and on your birthday and that was it. And now it's like, it is breakfast. It is lunch. It is, it is dinner. So it's the, yeah, the amount of it. Um, and I, I, I just don't believe that, uh, the foods that we're eating today, um, I can imagine that honey, when the person was eating that, uh, whenever it was a thousand years ago, something like that, they, they wouldn't have had the amount and the excessiveness of it that they would now, because, you know, there's bees flying around. There's, there's, um, 
other people who want the honey. It, it's not like you can control the amount if you, if you get yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I get that. Yeah. And so, um, the other thing that that's interesting is when we talk about like the, the type of foods. And so there's, there's plain sugar and there's added sugar and there's processed foods and things that, that don't sort of necessarily exist in nature, like the sugar fat combination and, you know, how the food companies, I, I interviewed uh, Michael Moss on the podcast and how the, yeah. you know, the food companies are basically designing these essentially to be addictive, sort of playing yeah. on our brains. And so you mentioned dopamine before. I mean, it's almost like they're, they're specifically designing the, the foods to give you the dopamine hit um, yeah. and to make you want more. So, you know, when we look at that level of evidence for dopamine hits and being addictive and it seemed to be pretty consistent from rats to other mammals to humans yeah. that, that throughout the spectrum, that that dopamine hit is what breeds or sort of builds addiction. So is it, is it more complex than that? Or is that basically it? It's the dopamine that drives you to want more. It's the dopamine that drives you to want more because dopamine is essentially the neurochemical of want. So if you have more, you're going to want more because it is the, the neurochemical of desire and want. Um, and um, well, Yes, but then, then the because you have more, uh, it, it's it's kind of like um, if you think about the brain, um, you know, we have dopamine because it's essentially our neurochemical of motivation, and it, it does allow us to have that occasional burst of joy, or not, it's not actually joy, but of, of, of desire and want, which motivates us to get off and 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 get off the couch and not just go to work, but to you know, I want I want to uh, um, you know get a Nobel prize. I want to get a PhD. I want to do it. So you're going to do that extra effort. And, and the brain allows you to sort of expand your normal dopamine supply, if you were, if you will, of a day, uh, and, and it allows for that. But, but essentially we call it an addiction. It's the easier, softer way. So you get that, that allowance on, on demand. It, it's, it's almost like spirituality on demand. What's spirituality? It's the extraordinary or the extra, the abnormal from the, the normal. Um, and it, 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 that, that we have an allowance for that to motivate us to, through the, the treasury of life. This it, it, addictive foods, addictive whatever, lets us live in that realm. And, and the brain doesn't want to be living in that realm. So it develops essentially an, a, a resistance. And I often say for people who, um, who don't believe in a food addiction, you know, if you believe in the concept of diabetes as insulin resistance, what is that? That's because there's so much sugar, so there's so much uh, insulin that you become resistant. Um, similarly with addiction, there's so much dopamine, eventually we, we become dopamine resistant or, or dopamine impaired. And so that if you don't like the term addiction, call it dopamine resistance syndrome, dopamine impairment syndrome. Uh, some people have used terminology like that, and that would work really well because we start to develop a, a resistance. Yes, that is interesting, calling it a dopamine resistance syndrome rather than yeah. addiction probably would be a lot easier for people to, to sort of agree with from an academic standpoint. But I wonder if yeah. part of the problem is, is the people who are you know making the decisions about the, the DSM-5 and the insurance whether insurance approves it or not, they they may be the type of people who can eat a cookie and stop, uh -huh. or have you know two potato chips and stop. So I guess that's the other thing. There's there's definitely subsets of people 
who yes. can just have a little bit and have no problem with it. And so that Absolutely. leads people to see like, say, see, it's not addictive. I can have some and I'm not addictive. Right. Right. So like, help, help, help us with that sort of. We've got that, end of, we've got that end of one syndrome. So, or, yeah. you know, end of the tribe syndrome. So, so uh, that's a very useful idea to, to recognize because, uh, um, in as much as we are able to identify food addiction, there are already statistics that suggest how much how much food exist, exist, um, addiction exists. And and you know on the completely super conservative side, we could say there's probably eight percent of the population that's food addicted. And, and then if you're um, willing to look at um, specific populations, um, some people will say it's probably around twenty or thirty percent, especially in the Western world with where we're living with this uh, um, um, abundance of basically dopamine spiking all over the place. Um, uh, so maybe 30%. If you're looking in the obese population, we can up that to maybe 40 or 50%. So, you know, from anywhere from super conservative to eight, eight or 9% of the population to maybe 50% of the population, that still means there's 50% that are not food addicted and that, um, that are, that, that can manage to control and have just a little bit. Um, and, it does appear to be, uh, and you'll see this in any of the addiction, um, uh, any of the drugs, um, that that the people who struggle, it's almost like there's two sets of people and they get it or they don't get it. And it does seem to be that the people who don't buy into it either are food addicted and don't want to see it because don't forget denial is an aspect of food addiction or they aren't. And there's plenty of people that aren't. This is why Weight Watchers works. This is why, um, actually, this is why keto and low carb works for many people, many people. And and then there's of course those people who don't. It doesn't. And those are the ones that are probably un, undiagnosed food addicts. Yeah. And and when it comes down to it, for those individuals, whether it's an addiction or not, whether it meets criteria or not, the individual doesn't care. The individual just needs to know how they can get past this. And so part of it though, is also, I think, you know, is it an addiction across the board or is it, you know, using food for comfort in times of stress or, um, you know, negative emotions or, boredom and like, where is there, is there, you know, you see like the Venn diagrams that are overlapping for that. Do you see those as different? Like you will approach somebody very differently if they're just eating for boredom and emotion and for comfort versus if they're, if they have more of an addictive um, relationship with food, do you see those as different? Well, I, I, I definitely see them as overlapping because of course food, no matter who you are, it's a comfort. I mean, it is a pleasure. So, you know, sweet foods, fatty foods, um, I mean, they are pleasurable. They, they, they spike dopamine. Like there's no question about that. It's how you, um, get caught in the web of that. And, you know, if you're, if you're able to enjoy it and then put the plate away when you're done, then you're not, you're not snared up. Like there hasn't been an impairment or a derangement of those pleasure, um, um, cues. But if with addiction, you know, you develop this because of the abundance, you develop this condition called food addiction, which is essentially, like I said, dopamine impairment. But the first thing that happens is a tolerance that happens. And then once that tolerance happens, eventually you become dependent. And so then now you can't live without it. That whole phenomena, which is a gradual adjustment, then the, the comfort may still be there, but that then dominates. And by the time a person is end stage food addiction, um, they're not eating anymore for pleasure. They're just eating because they don't want to feel bad. You know, basically the uh, addictive paradigm is often you start with the pleasure 
of a cigarette in the morning. Oh my God, that's so nice. I, I, this is for those of you who used to be smokers and are still. Um, and and you, you'll know that um, four or five hours into the day, you're not smoking for that pleasure anymore. It's not there anymore. You just don't want to feel the jittery craving sense, you know, which is essentially that dependence that's happened. And that happens with sugar too. And um, if you don't cross that line, then um, comfort eating will work. But it, 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 most most food addiction food addicts will say it doesn't give it to me anymore. We call that chasing the dragon in the addicted world. It doesn't work anymore. You're constantly looking for something new, right? Which the food so you need to keep not. upping the state. So whether it's gambling, you need to start gambling with more money. Whether it's cigarettes, you need to start smoking more cigarettes, and it just goes up and up and up and up. Yeah. So same with food. Yeah. You know, if I can just make a comparison. So, you know, if you think about something like, like, so people say food, you have to eat food. Come on, what's the problem? So sex is a good example. We all have to have sex. Like at, at some level, human nature needs that because it's it's part of the human uh, condition. Um, but because, you know, we, we're, we're in an environment where um, the sex can become uh, quick, rapid, basically with internet porn or or uh, just just uh, I don't know dating sites, whatever. Like like you move out of the realm of normal, um, so then you end up having sexual behavior that is aberrant because of this essentially development of tolerance and whatnot and adaptation to an abnormal environment. So that's going to happen with food. It's going to happen with sex. It's going to happen with anything. Anything. Yeah, interesting analogy about how again how the environment sort of shapes the. The addiction yeah. more than anything, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, and and so when we're talking about uh, food addiction and and food cravings and overeating and compulsive eating disorders, et cetera, is it fair to say though not everybody with a food addiction is obese, and not everybody who's obese yeah. has a food addiction? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Because as I was saying with the obese, uh, the st- uh, food addiction statistics, um, you know, the the most liberal is. 40 to maybe 60%. That still means 40% of people who are obese are not food addicted. Yeah. Um, and and uh, there's uh, it's, the statistics also show that um, we have more people with food addiction in the underage rather than the normal. So that I think that there's a lot of people, um, and he, here's where, um, I don't know, the people on the diet doctor, you're not going to like what I have to say here. Um, but here's where I think that um, we can look at some food addictive behaviors like restricting um which is what you'll see with people who are underweight, um, they can end up, that can become an addictive pattern too. It doesn't mean that it is, but it can be. It has to do with weight to some degree, but it doesn't have to be. And often skinny people, underweight people are have a problem more than normal weight people do. Yeah, So, but, but interesting. So you bring up the concept of restriction, um, yes. which can be a, you know an addiction or a, or a crutch or whatever you want to call it as well. So yeah. I, I think it's interesting to talk about. So what is the role of you know things like inter, intermittent fasting, right? Yes. With people with food addiction, is that a trigger or could that be helpful? A ketogenic yeah. diet for people with food addiction, is that going to be a trigger or in some ways going to be helpful? And I know there's individual variations with that, but so what do you see the roles of sort of restriction for benefit and where does it cross over benefit and cause more harm potentially? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. I mean, I walked into that one, but I, I think it's a really important one. Um, I, I, first of all, I want to say that the low carbon keto food plan 
is just just by its nature. I mean, I think that that whoever I mean, I don't know if it was Atkins or well, what, I mean, it's been around for longer than him. But um, I mean, I mean it, it's inherently a food addiction platform. Like it, it's because you're removing all, all of the um, refined carbs that are often the first stage. So that it, just by removing that, you've got yourself a food addiction plan. So I'm I'm very much in favor of that just for that reason. Um, now intermittent fasting is um, I, I, my, my perspective on that, and you know, it's just my perspective, um, is as an addiction physician that's interested in food addiction, is that it is a valuable tool, but it has a double-edged sword. And, and uh, I will often say to people, it, it, it is a, a wonderful, especially if you're diabetic, you've got metabolic syndrome, you, you, you want to get to the problem quickly um, and resolve the problem. You want to get rid of the, the, the insulin resistance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, intermittent fasting might be a quick way to do that, but, you, but um, it, it potentially puts a person who is hypersensitized to not only foods, but also hunger, which can become a trigger. Think about food addicts. What have they done all their life? They've been on diets. They've been on restricting. And then what do they do? They 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 binge and purge. And so you get this eating disorder pattern, which I think could be an actual addictive pattern. It does. I mean, the, the, is it an eating disorder, food addiction? Oh my God, that's another quandary that we just we just pull our hair out uh, because it's very hard to tell the difference. Um, but uh, it, it's a it's a tool that I always suggest to people uh, use it for medical reasons and use it under the guidance of somebody who knows what they're doing, not just about the actual tool of intermittent fasting. I mean, you don't you you, you got to eat the right food so that you can sustain yourself, but also that, uh, that somebody who knows about food addictions, if that person has a history of food addiction, that that they be very careful that it doesn't slip into a uh, either a trigger or a version of the addiction itself. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, now, and now you mentioned hunger, which I think is so important, and the reaction to hunger um, yes. that whether you can have, whether you have food addiction or not. Um, and I, this is a concept that I think most people have sort of kind of lost a sense of. Like, what does it really mean to be hungry because for so long we were taught that you should avoid hunger and just snack, you know, keep snacking all day long if you're hungry and just, just avoid that feeling of hunger. And especially if you're eating sort of high carb, high sugar, refined carb foods, you, right. you, you get hungry really quickly. So uh, one of the concepts, whether it's with a low carb keto diet or uh, what we're talking about now at Diet Doctors, a lot of this higher satiety diet, eating foods that just make you feel fuller, quicker, you know, so you're not as many calories, so you're not as hungry. But someone has to still be in tune with what their hunger signals are and that yes. they don't have to immediately react to them. So I guess my question is, do you see that that is a problem for people who suffer from food addiction, that they have a disconnect with those hunger signals? And if so, what can they do to sort of reconnect with them? I, I, you're absolutely right. A lot of people have a disconnect because they're used to grazing, they're used to snacking and they don't know, or they've got a terrific fear um, about being hungry because of a of, of previous history. It's like the it's like the opiate addict or the alcoholic who is uh, starting to feel withdrawal and they've got a whole cue associated. When I feel this way, I know where I'm going. I know how awful it's going to be. I got to I got to protect myself. Like there's an overt uh, stress response that's larger than it should be. So yes, I do think that there is a uh, heightened and, and mis, misguided uh, cues, the hunger cues. So I do believe in the concept of appropriate hunger, absolutely. Uh, appropriate hunger, which is, you know, Grayley leptin um, synchronicity, um, not the hypoglycemic crash of, of eating, you know, where you're ravenous, 
willing to eat anything that's in sight. Um, uh, and, and I believe that that is best attained by um, a, th a three meal a day plan. Now, it, it, a, a person might, if they're going to be under the care of somebody, if they're a food addict, be able to get away with a, a two uh, two meal a day or one meal a day, but it requires extra caution. But I think that if you're eating non-processed foods, um, three meals a day is, but nothing in between. I'm not talking about eating the whole time. Uh, you'll, you'll reach that um, synchronicity of our natural, what we like to think of as intuitive eating. And by the way, I do not believe in the concept of intuitive eating unless you're eating real food or low carb food. I don't think it's possible with the, the foods that is out there today. That's just- yeah. That's such a good point. I think when you look at the, there, there was actually recently a meta-analysis published about intuitive eating, which basically showed no benefit. But I think that's a great point. It, like anything, it depends on the food you're eating, right? Because if you're trying to do intuitive eating with refined carbs and sugar and processed sugar fat, like it's just, you're setting yourself up for failure because that's how, what the food is basically designed to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. so I think that's a really good point. Well, so now I think is a good time to sort of transition to a little bit more of the of the practical aspect. So if someone is listening and thinks, I think I might be addicted to food, I might have a food addiction, what are some of the things that they can look at within themselves about their behaviors to kind of say, is this an addiction or is this something more mild? And how, how do you guide people from that? Okay, so so there's many ways that you can determine if you're a food addict, and they're they're all trying to grasp the the um, sort of addiction uh, development, the, the the chronicity that I was talking about earlier. Um, but you know, you can look on the internet and look up the 20 questions of food addiction, um, or you can pull out the uh, Yale Food Inventory, which is a sort of scientific tool to do the same thing, but you know, in a, in a more um, scientific way, I guess. Um, and, you know, essentially, you're just trying to see, um, uh, are these behaviors mimicking an addictive pattern? So, you know, ask yourself, are you are you somebody that um, thinks a lot about particular foods, not just food, but although it could be, but particular foods, like a favorite food, and it's usually something that's high, high caloric, dense, um, sugar, fat, salt combination. Um, uh, and and is, is it, uh, it, it, you have an attachment to it that sometimes is a little bit more than it warrants. And so, uh, you know, you're using it for comfort. You're thinking about uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to have this thing at the end of the day. Um, or, uh, you know, I'm, I can't wait until my birthday and I'm going to have this thing. Um, so, so you could say that that's comfort, but this is just a little bit more. You start, you're developing a kind of emotional attachment almost to it, which we would call craving. And as the condition um, um, progresses, that craving actually becomes an obsession. So I got to have this thing. And if I don't have this, like, oh, my God, I, we ran out of this. It's snowing outside. I don't care. I'm going to get the car and I'm going to drive and get some more. And I don't care. Uh, just like the person um, who, uh, you know, needs to have their drug, basically. Um, so you've got this piece of this obsessional piece. And then if you find that eventually tolerance develops because of exposure and, and repeated use. Um, and so that now, you know, the Girl Guide cookies came and they were delicious. The two or three that you had, uh, obviously, we're not uh, talking low carb here. Um, uh, and um, you find that you need to have the whole row to get the same pleasure that you had uh, from your memory of, you know, last year or something. So you need the whole row. And then eventually you find you need the whole bag because you're always trying to chase that feeling to get that, you know, dopamine is want and you want to reach the 
ah, I got it. I can put it away now. I got it. But that's not dopamine. And the more you eat, the less you're going to get that feeling, actually. It just doesn't happen because that's not dopamine. Um, but you develop this sense of tolerance. So are you basically, then you ask the questions, are you uh, finding that you need more just to get the same sense of satisfaction? Um, uh, just like the person who used to have one glass of wine to fall asleep now needs a half a bottle. And before you know it, in two or three years, they need the whole bottle. Same thing happens with food. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it's not just a little bag of, uh, of, of chips from the uh, Halloween packet. It's the big bag. And maybe why not throw in another one? So do you need more? And, 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 and then what ends up happening is um, uh, because you're having more, you're having a, now impairment. So are you eating even when you know you shouldn't? You've got diabetes or you're pre-diabetic or you've reached that weight where you're going to say, you know what, when I reach that weight, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop eating this stuff and you find you reach that weight and it's like it's like um you can't stop and there's impairment following around you so are you starting to suffer consequences like 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 issues with weight or diabetes consequences like i'm supposed to go out with my friends tonight but frankly i'd rather stay at home eat my thing drink my pop watch netflix and maybe once or twice fine we can we understand that but it starts to become a pattern of behavior so you start to become isolated this happens it happens with booze it happens with uh, food um and then so, so are you starting to have behaviors where there are consequences just because of the food itself uh, and then the next question would be do you find that you simply cannot stop even when you want to uh, do you hate yourself are, are you frustrated you start to see aberrant behavior. Like, are you lying to yourself? I, I can't, it drives me nuts when people say, I don't know how I gained weight. I, I, I don't eat any. I Look, you saw what I, the salad I ate. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you didn't tell me about, uh, you know, at, at the treatment center, they'll say, you don't know this guy. He's, he's, he's at the vending machine every night, you know, throwing down the, uh, more, you know, more chocolate bars. Meanwhile, he's telling me, he's insisting on the salads that he's eating. He probably believes it when he's telling me. I don't think he's necessarily doing it intentionally. So yeah. uh, are you starting to lie? Are you stealing? Are you hiding? Are you e eating privately differently than in public? So if anyone listening says, yeah, I think that might be me. These are all features of this addictive paradigm. And then finally, the last one, which is uh, I, I just cannot stop and I want to and I keep trying. And every time I try, it gets worse. I get three days under the belt and then I end up relapsing and eating more. And now you're stuck. Because it hurts. it hurts too much to not have it. Who cares that it's not pleasant anymore? It's not pleasant anymore. If you're, if anybody's there sitting going, I, I want this thing. I think it's going to, and you're constantly disappointed and it doesn't give you any pleasure. It doesn't give you comfort, but you still want it because the thought of not having it is, is even worse. That's probably the, 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 the gold standard right there. Yeah. And I, and I can imagine anybody with this constellation of, of feelings and emotions and behaviors is also likely kind of beating themselves up over this and like yeah. feeling themselves as their fault and how can they do this and they're you know, worthless and like going down that whole spiral, which is definitely not the case because it's a, it's a brain function. It's something that's, yeah. that's kind of out of your control. So, I mean, and then you, so you add that on top of it and it just kind of compounds things even worse, I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a cold, you're coughing and you're saying, you know, stop coughing. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a normal reaction to this abnormal environment. Yeah. 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 Now, when you draw the, the, um, the similarities to alcohol or cocaine or cigarettes or whatever, the first treatment is just quit. 
But yeah. frequently people need a bridge because it's hard to just quit something that brought you that joy that you're, or not joy, but that hit, gave you that dopamine hit and that you're used to and is just part of who you are. So whether it's a patch or a gum or, you know, non-alcoholic beer, whatever the case may be, there's crutches. So is there a crutch for people who have a sugar addiction, processed food addiction, you know, and you can't just cut out food altogether. So how do you, you know, what's sort of like the first step to sort of to ease people into the transition of saying, okay, this is your step towards treatment? Well, okay. So first of all, you, 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 I want to say another way to think of dopamine is expectation. So is there some, because that's, that is what it is. It's not, it's not the joy, it's the expectation of joy. Um, and so what can you have that will give you that same expectation? The thing that comes to mind right away are, are things like sweeteners. Now, the problem with that is that, that, um, uh, here is another one of the things we have to untangle in the food addiction world. There's so many tangles and muddles, and that's partly what the problem is here. Nothing is clear. Um, there are some people who actually just do better to just cold turkey and stop. And, mm -hmm. and um, I, I'm going to make a pitch for that because doing the cold turkey and stopping means that you are literally stopping and you're not prolonging the agony. You know, if you put the patch on, if you're trying to quit smoking or, or do the vaping or whatever, you're still engaging in the process and the, and, and, the thing to know about addiction, just like anything else, even something like crystal meth or whatever it is, is it only takes a few days to weeks to get past. And then you've got, of course, you've got the whole relapse, not, not relapsing back, but the actual desire and craving and all that stuff gets quiet. It doesn't take that long. It's like people say it takes three weeks to break a habit. It takes three weeks to break an addiction if you're not prolonging the agony through sweeteners and through uh, all sorts of, you know, fancy little cute bread that's not really bread. I mean, this, this, I actually remember how I said earlier that uh, the low-carb keto kind of stumbled on the perfect food addiction plan. Um, they did. And then, unfortunately, the food industry has gotten its feet in it in there, too. And um, it's starting to introduce all sorts of nasty little things that are processed, highly addictive. But they say, look, no carbs. This is safe. It's not just the carbs, though. Uh, it's, it's, so, you know, you, if the person has already been clean and now they're reintroducing addictive stuff, this is where I think um, people are starting to struggle that 20 or 30 or 40% in the low carb community who are going, Oh my God, what's happened to my perfect plan. I was doing so well. And now I'm not, uh, if they, if they look back, they can probably find, Oh, it was that stuff that I started. I thought that stuff was safe. No, yeah. it's not. Safe. Um, That's a great point. Like maybe they start with just a whole foods keto plan and yeah. then the keto cookies start coming in and the keto yeah. ice cream and the, the keto yeah. treats and the fat bombs. And then all of a sudden those are they're addicted to sort of those and, and they see their relapse. Yeah. That's a really yeah, good point. It kind of triggers the whole dopamine cascade. And so now you're, and then you're going to start picking up the other stuff because why not have the real thing? Why would I have sweetener if I can have the real thing? I'll just start tomorrow again. And, and of course that doesn't work. Um, so, so that's my pitch for having a, um, just, just cold Turkey. It, uh, it's hard to do though. So if you want to do the other way, knowing that you're prolonging the agony, you say, well, but the agony is not as bad and I can't do it the other way. Then yes, sweetener would be one way. And you know, all of these, these things that entice and make it, you can bargain yourself to say, okay, I won't have this. I'll have this instead. Um, uh, and, and, and I know a lot of people who are successful, myself included. I, I, I needed to take uh, sweeteners for at least four years until I finally got off them. And I was fine in those four years, but it was still like, I still chose 
And when I was eating the stuff with the sweetener, I always wanted a little more of that than the other stuff that didn't have the sweetener. So I knew there was still something there. Nuts is a fabulous example. Yeah, uh, tell me about nuts. And nuts, nuts are, are, are much better than sugar, but you notice that, that um, when those start to pile on, uh, they, it's, it's, you go nuts, essentially. <laughs> so, so people have to knock them off uh, as well. Uh, but they might be a, a suitable uh, midterm um, as well. So I, I do say to people, if you're gonna, if you have to snack, like you're at the airport and you have to have something, instead of getting a chocolate bar or something like that, get get a bag of get, get nuts instead. Um, but they can be a problem too. So right. you know, right. yeah. All right. So so you talked about uh, complete abstinence rather than having a crutch being sort of the best way yeah. to start. Yeah. But even that, you know, whether no matter what the addiction is, it's certainly not 100% success and that, you know, a, a large percentage relapse. On average, how many times do you think it takes to, you know, try it, relapse, try it, relapse before it sticks? And whether it's food addiction or other addictions, is there, a, is there like a common figure that people cite? I, I would have to say in the food addiction world, I have not seen a common figure. Um, I, I will say this, and it, it's not a, I'm sure it's not a popular thing to hear, that, that the first time that you quit is the easiest, and the people who stick with that are going to have the easiest time. So if you're deciding to do it, um, really try to make it. It's not that the next time and the next time, absolutely you want to keep trying. Um, but the first time, it's almost like we're given a grace. And then once you, what we call learned behavior, learned helplessness, once you've learned uh, that you can fail, it becomes an irritant. It's like a pebble in your foot, in your shoe. And, and uh, we see this happening with addiction all the time. You know, the person who relapses on three months or, or, or after a year, you know, they get their chip of whatever it is. And, and, and uh, then they relapse every year. Um, it's very subtle, but um, anyway, so the first time is the best, but the problem is, is, is that because it's so easy, people will think, Hey, that wasn't so bad. So then it's my birthday it wasn't that bad. I'll just have my birthday cake and then I'll start again next Monday. Uh, but next Monday, it's going to be twice as hard as it was the first time. And then the third Monday, if you relapse again, it's going to be even harder. Um, so what, but I wouldn't say quit. It just means you have to up your game of relapse prevention. You're going to have to take it much more seriously. And a lot of the people that we see, because we see end stage, um, um, is, is, um, uh, you may need some really strong support, like daily calls, um, you know, groups, all sorts of stuff. To you're going to get through that three weeks. It's the chatter that it's that dopamine chatter, that expectation. This could be better. You know, you can do it this time. You can have just one. All, all the lies that come with addiction that doesn't go away. It does get quieter. So do you see like the same 12-step programs that work for alcohol? Do those types of programs work for food addiction as well? Is it the same, same concept? Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, with, uh, with um, um, food, there's actually way more programs than there are in alcohol. There's AA. Um, and yes, I know there's NA and there's, you know, uh, there's essentially AA or variations thereof. But with food addiction, there's like probably 10 uh, because there's there's even one that's sort of keto low carb specific, and some of them have a specific diet because they they um, not a diet a food plan where they they um, suggest um, 
not all of them are low carb, but many of them are, or they're limited. Um, and, and then, but, but on top of that food plan, because you could just, like I said, keto is great. But if you are a food addict and you've got that chatter in your head, then um, having that extra support on top of that is pretty important. And that's where the 12-step program is fabulous because it's free and it's abundant everywhere. Um, if, if you're really against the 12-step stuff, one of the things that's because we are becoming better known um, in, in the food addiction community and the clinicians, we're able to offer more services because the more people learn about it, get trained in it. Um, the more services are available. So there is help out there, folks, if you don't want to do the 12-step program. You have to pay for it, though, but it, there is help. How can people find that help? What, what's the best way for them to start to find it? Um, at, at this stage, because there's, you know, the internet, fake truth, false truth, people who are trying to make a buck, um, there's a lot of people who say it's food addiction, and yet they're, they're preaching moderation. You, you have to kind of go to the places that are truly food addiction. And so there are, there are some web page, um, sort of Facebook groups, myself, my mind being one of them, but there's a few of them. I can tell you what a couple of them are right now if you want. Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. If you have some that, that stand out as being some of yeah. the best to direct people to, I think they'd want to hear where they should start. Yeah, because you can go in there and then ask for help and you'll know that you're in the right community. So a uh, sh- sugar bomb in my brain, which is bitten, bitten, um, which is, she's on your, um, web, yeah. um, I talk to her all the time. So she's got a, a webpage, uh, pardon me, a, a Facebook group with tons of information. There's a sugar detox. Um, that's another really good one. There's mine, which is the I'm sweet enough sugar free for life. Um, uh, so we have, um, uh, basically lots of support in there. Um, and in in those groups, like in mine for particularly, I've um, um, uh, picked clinicians that I'm aware of that have been suitably trained. Um, and uh, then once you get hooked into that community, then you can find more out. And um, yeah, that's what I would I would really strongly suggest that don't just type in uh, in the internet sugar um, um, addiction therapy because you don't know what you're getting. Yeah, it's a good point. Really good point. Well, so what do you think needs to happen next? You know, you're 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 so involved in this field, but there's so much still left to do. What do you think the next steps need to be to really help people, help that individual more, and help populations more to recognize this, diagnose it, treat it, and even prevent it? Yeah. So I, I forgot to say there's there's a, my podcast as well, which is Food Junkies podcast, and and we interview a lot of people who are in that food addiction world. So there's a, another way to find out uh, what we need to do is talk. Like you, you know, I'm like I said, I'm thrilled that you asked me to speak because it allows me to get the message out there. Uh, I mean, I'm not making any money out of doing this, but it, it's my passion to to get the message out there, somebody else is going to hear that and they're going to tell other people. That's the way we have to do it. It's not going to happen from the from the top down, from the clinicians, from the food industry. They have no interest. They make money to not have this happen. So it's it's got to come essentially from the, uh, the demographics, uh, the population, the trenches up. And the only way we're going to do that is by telling each other and educating each other through podcasts, uh, groups, and, and whatnot. So that's how I see it happening. And then we have people, leaders in the field like Robert Lustig, who are, um, you know, policymakers. They're not just clinicians, they're policymakers. I'm not a policymaker, but we need to get more uh, policymakers. And then people like Michael Moss and, and uh, Gary, Gary Taubes, who are notifying the public on a grander scale than I can do. Um, that's what we need to do. It's, it's, so that if I can just say this, one thing that I would be thrilled to see happen is that 
through this gradual population um, um, change that there become a shift in attitude because now we see sugar as a friend, as, as normal, as something that should like, come on, how can we not eat this stuff to, to instead see it as a toxin that it truly is. Uh, so that if you want to offer um, sugar in your house, just like a cigarette smoker has to go outside and smoke, that we ask those people, if you want to have that, go outside, maybe not outside, but in another room, uh, do your thing somewhere else so that there is that same sense that this is not an, a, a, a gift of love. Um, this is actually something that I feel sorry, you got to do this. Let me help. Just like, like right. people who are smoking now. I, I mean, most of, most of the people who are smoking wish that they didn't. Uh, they wish they could quit. And, and you know, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic when they're wishing they could quit rather than that they're, they're thinking that it's their right to smoke or something like that. And I, I, we, we need to make that view that um, sugar is not love. It's not norm. I, I love that sentiment, but it's, it, it's so encouraging to hear and to say, yes, I agree with that. But at the same time, it's so depressing to say like, you know, that's not going to happen, right? Like you just look at every kid in America, every kid, you know, every household, and they do the exact opposite. So to try and yeah. get them all to do that, but that's exactly what we need to do. I, I, I agree with you yeah. wholeheartedly. And how do we take that? How do we take that first step? And it's only by hearing messages like this, that sugar yeah. is not love. I love that little catch line there. Sugar is not love and sugar shouldn't be love. We can show love and support and appreciation in so many other ways that don't involve sugar. Yeah, and also, you know, like 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 Robert Lustig's thing, we can tax the hell out of it so that people just like we tax cigarettes. Like, I, I mean, I used to be a smoker, and it was like I, I'm not spending that much money on cigarettes. Like, so even though I, I I didn't care that it was something that people didn't like around me when I smoked, but it, when it started hurting uh, me in a particular way, then it, then it mattered. And so if you're if you're having to pay a lot of money for something, um, that I think that makes a difference. I think there is something there. Yeah, and that's what makes the sort of the legal definition so interesting because when you get into taxation, that's when you need a DSM-5 criteria. That's when you need sort of a, a an agreed-upon definition. So that's why the whole discussion we had in the beginning may not matter to the individual what it's called, but to from a policy standpoint and from getting things done like that, then it absolutely makes a difference. And that's why we need clinicians like you helping the individuals and policymakers like doc, Dr. Robert Lustig really trying to make a difference in terms of the policy and the definitions. We definitely need both of those pillars to make, make an impact for sure. Well, I think this has been a great discussion and I hope listeners really got to connect with your message and, and see if it applies to them or, or a loved one. If they wanted to find more about you and, and read more about what you have to say, where would you direct them to go? Well, I would really like that uh, if you haven't yet got my book, please pick up a copy of my book. You can get it on Amazon. There's even an audible version. There's actually a French version. Um, uh, it's a, a food junkies recovery from food addiction. Uh, it's a pretty easy read and I think it's a very good primer. I have the, uh, my, the food junkies podcast that I do with a couple of other um, uh, uh, colleagues. It's a, I think it's a fabulous podcast and it has, uh, we, we uh, basically talk to all the people who you want to know in the field. And then of course my Facebook group, please. Um, I'm sweet enough, sugar free for life. That's how you can get me. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks for all the work you're doing in this very important field. Thank you. Thank you.